Joey Lopez loves media, all kinds of media. That love of media was confirmed at UT Austin's Act Lab, where he was teaching assistant for Sandy Stone, the legendary academic and media theorist. When I took soundscapes and Sandy was like, production's important, but why are you making this? What are you making? What's the story? How, what is sound? Why does sound matter? Like, you know, how, what, what was sound and what will sound be? Like, I was just, it was just intoxicating. And so, um, I just really latched on to that to the extent that I ended up taking a plethora of classes with her on, on, on multiple topics. And uh, it's also where I learned HTML. You know, I learned HTML and Notepad uh, at the ACK Lab. And by the second semester, I was making websites for hi-fi companies. And that would end up being like a $500 to $1,000 a month side gig that I did all the way through my PhD. I was hosting either a dealer or importer level uh, websites for gear that they were selling. And that was really fun. And, uh, and I learned it all in the Act Lab. In this episode of the Plutopia podcast, we discussed Act Lab, high-end audio gear, and Joey's work at Texas A&M's Media and Gaming Lab. Hey, everybody. The Plutopians have landed. John Lepkowski and Scoop Sweeney of the Plutopia News Network joining you today with our guest, Joey Lopez. Joey's an assistant professor of practice at the Texas A&M. He's a director of the Department of Communications Media and Gaming Lab there, which I hope we'll talk about quite a bit. Uh, he's a polymath of sorts, and his works range from Chicana feminism to automotive journalism to hardware and software development cheerleading. And I grabbed that from Joey's bio. Joey, that sounds crazy. You do it, everything. It keeps me really busy. I bet. You yeah, have such I, a mix of fascinations. Yeah, I um I, what I do a lot of is is facilitating. Ultimately, I'm like an anthropologist. I love studying culture and being submit, submerged in different cultures. And so <clears throat> I really kind of just latch on to what people want to do and their interests and I have I have very few personal agendas and interests that uh, I, I project onto others. Typically, it's if I have a project, I'm kind of just doing it on the side in parallel to everything else that's going on, which I do have a couple of those. So it's fun. I guess I'd, I got to ask you about that, that picture on your wall back there of Harry Truman. Yeah, there, uh, there is a story. So you're in no way yeah. uh, off Tell basis me. there. Let me know. Well, this is my nerdy room. Uh, my wife and I's nerdy room, I should say. Uh, or the family nerdy room. I don't know. And uh, and so behind me are are my bicycles. And my well, my wife's and I's bicycle. They're hooked up to trainers. We, we ride on virtual worlds. Uh, it's called Zwift. And, um, and then, you know, I have my whole <laughs> nerdy setup this side, you know. And um, so I have a bunch of different art. Uh, from friends. And so that photo is a photo one of my friends took. Uh, his name uh, was Creston Funk. And uh, when he was a kid, he went out to the uh, San Antonio National Airport and kind of just went through the, the people there and just snapped this photo. And, um, and then 
in the late 90s, early 2000s, one of his friends that uh, owns a print shop used this really uh, high-end scanner to scan the, the negative. And, and then they did this thing called an iris print, which was like a really high-end uh, ink pigment uh, process, like a high-end inkjet printer that worked on this rotating drum. And so the print itself, I don't know how much it cost uh, physically, but it was significant. I mean, probably over a thousand dollars just for the print. And, uh, and it got mounted, um, by, uh, uh, by the, a frame shop in San Antonio. And so when my friend Creston passed away, his family gave me this print and then at our shop in San Antonio, I have a, a, a hi-fi store. I guess I should mention that. Uh, I have a hi-fi store where we sell high-end audio electronics that are handmade in, in England and the U.S. and Europe in general. And uh, Creston also took a photo of John F. Kennedy and Jackie right before he passed away, um, the, or the day before he passed away when he came to San Antonio and was in the, in the uh, convertible. So he's got this really eerie but cool photo of of jackie kind of waving at him because she he he was on a, a little stool standing so he was like propped up above people getting his photo he was just a, a kid getting this photo and uh you may have met creston at one point in austin when i was we all would hang out but um he passed away about two or three years ago and uh, he was the other like highly influential mentor. Uh, him and Sandy played a big role in molding how I, Sandy Stone, I should say, uh, played a big role in, yeah. in kind of who I am and, and how I got to, how I get to do what I, I love every day. And I met you through Sandy. Yeah. And um, you were working as Sandy's TA at the time. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was in the teaching lab assistant. At UT Austin. Yeah. yeah, and it was UT Austin was. So how did you, how did you get hooked there. up there? Well, tell me how you got into the act lab. You know, it's it's. I believe I went to a talk. You know, she had these amazing talk series all the time, every year, and I started off in '99. I want to say it was like either spring of 2000, something like that, that I found out about it and um or spring of 2001 and uh, and then next thing i know i'm taking a, a soundscapes class with sandy and i just never looked back i mean i never looked back and I, that that space was intoxicating it was a 60 by 40 foot by 30 foot room that had a thrust stage lighting grid a sound system it had like 20 Macs on one side 20 pcs i mean it was like just it had an aura to it, like a like a recording studio that you would go to. And I had taken recording engineering classes when I was 16 at a recording studio. Cause instead of playing football, that was what I that was what I was into. I was learning about audio. I got into audio when I was like six years old. And by the time I was I was like 12 to 14, I was building all my own sound systems and wanting to record and and so somehow I ended up learning to do multi-track recording and about all kinds of microphones when I was 15 and 16, taking recording classes at a studio in San Antonio. Like, and it was a real like purpose built double floated studio, like meaning the studio was floated within the building. And I hadn't, you know, you don't, <laughs> you don't see that very often. I don't know how many 
uh, of those you see. Usually it's a building that someone puts a studio in. This was a purpose-built studio. So you would open up one door and then that door would go to the exterior, the, the, the exterior's interior, and then you'd open the, the next door and then that's, that's the street. And I always thought that was just a really crazy experience. So when I took soundscapes and Sandy was like, production's important, but why are you making this? What are you making? What's the story? How, what is sound? Why does sound matter? Like, you know, how, what, what was sound and what will sound be? Like, I was just, it was just intoxicating. And so, um, I just really latched on to that to the extent that I ended up taking a, a plethora of classes with her on, on, on multiple topics. And, uh, it's also where I learned how HTML, you know, I learned HTML and notepad, uh, at the ACK lab. And by the second semester, I was making websites for hi-fi companies and that would end up being like a 500 to thousand dollar a month side gig that I did all the way through my PhD. I was hosting, either a dealer or importer level uh, websites for gear that they were selling. And that was really fun. And, uh, and I learned it all in the act lab. It was, it was really, really cool. I learned all about servers. I learned about Unix, Linux, Debian, like, I mean, just all the, the meat and potatoes of being a nerd, like happy and, you know, red neuromancer. Like, I mean, everything you can imagine, I, you know, learning about cyberpunk and, meeting John, this guy named John Lepkowski who introduced me to like, uh, you know, Bruce, uh, was it Bruce Sterling? I can't remember Bruce's last name. Um, yeah, Bruce Sterling and Corey yeah. Doctorow and all yeah, those I guys. met Corey and, you know, I would go on to seeing Corey over and over again for, you know, all the way into the 20 teens, just running into him in Austin because you, you kept, you kept facilitating and you've kept facilitating EFF Austin and it's it's been like this nice long slow burn you know this this light that doesn't ever go away in a in a very good way um and it's made these multi-generational collisions happen and uh, it's something i've really enjoyed i mean i, I know i'm on i'm i'm an old foger cuz i talk about facebook but i i mean i <clears throat> i love facebook in terms of being able to see all the different kinds of people that are on there and all the kinds of events that are still happening in Austin um, that you're not going to see that on on uh, on a lot of other platforms. So the EFF Austin updates about all the different talks that are coming up. I mean, th that's on my radar every day. You know, that's stuff that I, I love getting to see. Well, how did you get involved with high-end audio? It's not the stuff you get at Radio Shack. Uh... Right. Well, my dad... You know, my dad, my dad was a busy person and, uh, and he worked a lot. And so, um, but at the same time around my, the age of 12 was when I was the youngest of four or am the youngest of four. And, uh, they all started going off to college, kind of getting things settled in. And so my dad had a little more time for me at that point. And so he saw, I was like taking stereos apart and he was kind of, getting not frustrated, but just kind of like, what are you doing to our house? You know? And so he bought me a bunch of books. We went to the bookstore and he got me a book on building speakers, a book on electronics. And then he accidentally, I say accidentally, cause he didn't know what he was doing, bought me a, uh, a book about high-end audio. 
And suffice to say, I read that book inside and out and it's tethered and, you know, I mean, tethered, sorry. And, uh, I'm on like the second, you know, print I have of it. I've given, I've given it other copies away. And, um, that was when I was about 15. My dad really did. I mean, I, I, he really was concerned because <laughs> as you just said, I mean, it's not inexpensive, right? So I ended up working all summer when I was 16 years old and saving up to buy my first hi-fi. I bought an NAD amplifier, integrated amplifier and some Wharfdale speakers. I, it was this place called Concert Sound. They sold uh, British oriented hi-fi. So Tannoy and Lynn and Name and all these. Um, whereas before they had sold like Mark Levinson and and um, like AR, you know, Acoustic Research and all these other brands. And so... Um, so yeah, that's that's how I got into it. And I say my dad like kind of regretted because and he kind of regret <laughs> kind of regretted me going into RTF too. Because I mean, I play a lot. My life is a playground. And I'm very lucky and fortunate. And I'm very lucky and fortunate to have realized that when I was about 20. When I was about 20 years old, I realized like I am getting to play in ways that most people go to work for uh and, and they don't like their job. And uh and so I've lived that way this whole time. And, uh, and it was fun, but it was a little stressful for my parents and my family, admittedly, cause they all are very successful people, uh, in their own right. I mean, my, my, I have a brother that's a electrical engineer. His wife's electrical engineer. My sister's a pharmacist. His, I mean, her, her husband's a pharmacist, you know, <laughs> like, um, they have like these professional trajectories and I'm over here going like, I'm making crazy art and I want to do open source software development. I don't care about making money. I love high-end audio, but I don't care about necessarily uh, being the person that has millions of dollars to buy that kind of equipment. And so my family is just looking at me like, what is going to become, you know, of this guy? Uh, I got married pretty young at, at 22. Yeah. Uh, 23, I just turned 23. That's right. And, uh, and so it was, it was an adventure, um, doing the hi-fi stuff. And it, I'll tell you that the, the, it took, I can't remember my age, but I want to say I was about 40, 41, uh, during COVID, I think it was, or right before COVID, uh, at the shop, I ordered a, uh, a $10,000 CD player, <clears throat> And my, uh, I had it shipped to my parents cause I was in college station here and I wanted it to go to a place that I know, like they're going to get it signed for it and put it in the house kind of thing. And, uh, and so when I picked it up from my dad, that was the first time my dad was just like, this is awesome. Like, I can't believe, like, I mean, I can't wait to hear this thing. This is going to be amazing. And I was just like, wow, my, this is just normal talk instead of my dad going like, what are you doing? What are you doing with your shop? Why are you buying these? You know, like, why do you have this thing and who is going to buy it? And, you know, I've sold multiple of them since, but yeah, no, that's, and, and so, um, but really like, so why would like, a CD player cost $10,000? That's a lot. Yeah. 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 I mean, what did you get for $10,000? Um, so it uses a FF, uh, or F, uh, what is it called? The FPGA, a uh, field programmable gate array. And, um, and those are now really, really popular. Uh, but, um, this guy who went to MIT designs, um, they're called a, uh, resolution audio cantata. They still sell them. They're, they're for sale. And, um, 
he has been building CD players since around 95. And, uh, and so the digital to analog section on that system is his own design. And um, it's a 32-bit 784 megahertz processor. And so it can also do DSD uh, interpolation, which is direct stream, like one-bit interpretation. And it can do up to 512 uh, 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 bit stream. So the sound and, is radically different. Oh yeah, it, it, it's yeah. It's, oh. It's, oh yeah, it's right. I, I want different. one of those. Yeah, and and then it has it has multiple inputs. You can also use it as a preamp. Um, you can also get a like a moving coil or moving magnet uh, phono section to put in it, uh, and it will run all analog. It's not going to digitize it, but it'll run it as an input. And so a lot of times customers will get that, use it as a full like digital analog front end and then have power amplifiers, which they build for them. They build a, a hundred watt mono blocks for about $10,000. But, you know, I also sell stuff that costs $2,000 for everything, the turntable, the amp and the speakers. So, and they're all handmade. All of this is handmade. This is, and, and it, I know, it's I, not designed one place and, and manufactured somewhere else. So that's, that's another thing that's really different about it. You're, you, it's a cottage industry. You're buying from people that are, you know, well-paid and, and, and have good work conditions. That's the other I thought reason. I was doing well. They have a, a nice Yamaha receiver and some clip speakers. You are. I feel kind of lame now. No, that is pretty no, good. No. I mean, you know, you, we have good sound here. The one thing I always make clear about high-end audio is that um, it's it's about the music. I don't care what hi-fi you have. If you're enjoying music, you're enjoying music. I'm not going to question it. I'm not here to like press what I what I have. Oh, what's the best? If you don't have it, then you're this or that or blah blah. It's like, hey, if you're enjoying your music, like, who am I to come tell you otherwise? You know? I, yeah, I'm I, kind I of just, blown away by Dolby Atmos, Atmos now, but. I mean, I don't have a Dolby Atmos system. I'm just like 5.1. Yeah. Well, I'm just literally do um, two channel. That's what we do. It's it's two speakers, stereo. That's it. For, even for my movies, like when I watch movies, and 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 I love surround sound, and I love I love uh, uh, Dolby Atmos. Is I mean, it's very immersive. Uh, I listen to a lot of them, and they're really fun. But you also end up like uh, uh, spending a lot of time and money. Especially if you want to go high end audio, <laughs> I mean, you're gonna spend 100k to have the same kind of two channel experience, but surround sound. I mean, it's it, it it multiplies it now by so many speakers and amplifiers that I don't. I mean, in a weird way, it kind of prices me out as someone that wants to do it. And then and then people want it to control their lights. They want it to control their you know, bidet. I don't know. I'm just gonna be facetious, but like, you know, they want the home integration at that point. And that's <laughs> now we're not listening to music. We're barely talking about movies, and and that's where I get like, ah, eh, you know, I did tech support. We've all done but, tech support. How much fun is that? Eh, you know, I, I suppose if you take some existing like musical work and remaster it for Dolby Atmos, you've actually made a different sound. And it's not really yeah, it's the just, same sound. Yeah, it's just that... totally different. I mean, I've listened to high-end audio surround sound systems, and they're amazing. I mean, the best one I heard uh, was around 2002, 2003. Like, personally heard. Like, I went and, you know, was a, a, a SAD CD, uh, which is Super Audio CD, which is made by Sony. 
and uses that bitstream disk i was talking about the protocol that uh, it's one bit at 2.83 or something like that megahertz and uh, a sampling rate and um it was a 5.1 setup and we played dark side of the moon and and in a good surround sound mix with good surround sound system the you should be able to not feel weightless but it should be able to like put you in a different space and it feels weird in a good way like it's it's just really but that was like i don't know $150,000 then system i mean i <laughs> It was crazy. I was just like, well, that, that's the thing to listen to on that sort of system. The thing I yeah. love about Pink Floyd's uh, attention to detail and to really quality sound. Anytime I want to test out some equipment, I'll take along a couple of CDs of, mm -hmm. uh, of some of their better productions. And if it sounds good on the uh, equipment you're testing out, then that gear is probably pretty good because it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then I'm a cultural anthropologist, right. At the same time. So then like, that's a whole nother discussion is like, what do you, what do people bring? And then also what do I personally take to go hear systems? Like, and it's generational, it's, uh, it's cultural, societal, like depending on like how you grew up and what you listen to and what matters to you musically, acoustically. And so it's it's really fun. I mean, yeah, Dark Side of the Moon is one that like yeah, definitely every hi-fi shop probably has a copy of it. I mean, I know we do, and we have two locations and we have two copies of it, and we, we know where to get it for streaming. I mean, like it's it's definitely one the dire straits, like in the 80s and 90s, that was a huge one that people would play, you know, and and really test a system out with. Daft Punk is like a contemporary one that a lot of people test with. Um yeah. So, yeah. I had the good fortune to work in some uh, nice recording studios in LA when I was managing bands and uh, doing you know, label work. And I got to learn what was really important from the engineers. I had some great engineers and like my setup here in my studios, a couple of nice J GBL speakers and Yamaha NS10 mm -hmm. monitors, which are great for really determining that what you're producing is going to sound good to anyone. Because the NS10s are kind of the um, lowest common denominator speakers, to where if it sounds good on a boombox or on NS10s, yeah. it's probably going. It's probably recorded properly. Yeah, I mean, uh, NS10s are are every single studio I've been to has NS10s. I mean, and if they don't, they have an equivalent to it. The other one that's been real popular lately are Aventones or Aratone. Uh, like single driver little speakers. Uh, a lot of people are putting those on as little like super near fields um, uh, to to do listening to tracks on and stuff like that. But um, yeah, no, I mean, the, the whole hi-fi part was, was a, uh, so all of this happens in parallel. So I'm doing all this hi-fi and I, so I do that. And then around um, when I go to, to, to Act Lab, I learn how to make websites. I go to a hi-fi store that's literally across the street from where I'm going to class. It was right by Kirby Lane on on 26th and, and Guadalupe. Uh, yeah, 26th by the 7-Eleven that's still there somehow. And uh, and I think it's a tattoo shop now is, is uh, what the hi-fi shop was, where, where it was. And, um, 
And I started talking to the guy and he said he needed a website. I said I could do one. I traded him some hi-fi and he, be, he, he was super supportive of it. And at the exact same time in San Antonio, uh, the hi-fi shop I had bought hi-fi from, um, one of the, the own, the owner was there, but the, uh, I guess his lifelong business partner, I, I is what I would call him. His name's Mark Heaston, uh, was leaving. He was moving to Ohio. And so what ended up happening was I ended up kind of just making their website for them in San Antonio and then just running a hi-fi store for like 10 years. And we came, we became importers of hi-fi. I learned all about imports and duties and taxes. And it was really like this crazy journey. And then the other thing about selling hi-fi is that you just meet all kinds of interesting people. I mean, people that can afford hi-fi, like, you know, I don't know how many Porsches I got to ride in and Ferraris and, you know, BMWs and just really learn as an anthropologist, which I didn't know I was doing at the time. Looking back, this is how I describe it. But at the time it was just a ride and and I'm, I'm a huge car person. I, so I did my dissertation on, um, and so, uh, so I just met all these people and then I was going to UT at the same time and meeting all these technically minded people, getting my man, my mind molded by, by the ACK lab in a really cool way. And in San Antonio, what ended up happening was my, I brought up my, uh, my friend, Creston Funk, the one that took this photo. He was my hi-fi mentor. I've uh, owned concert sounds. I brought him up and he was just like, I like this place. I'm going to move. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, I'm moving. And like he had lived in, you know, he had lived in uh, uh, San Antonio for like 57 years, you know, his whole life. And he just like picked up and moved everything and moved down in downtown, right, right off third and Bowie at the Gables lofts right there. And uh, I moved down there with my wife uh, and we like opened up a shop and, and it was craziness ensued on all levels. And and that was where like, uh, act lab and, and hi-fi really started to meld together. It's where I met this guy named Jerry Champkus, which I don't know, John, if you, if you ever met Jerry, but, um, he did radio, uh, like pirate radio so. work. And, uh, and so we met him at gallery Lombardi, which is like since torn down. And, uh, and he had this thing called a Cosmophone and it was, a uh, a uh, uh, a he called it a cosmic ray detector it was it was uh, uh he used liquid nitrogen to cool this sensor down that would pick up on cosmic rays and then convert it to midi and play like noise music and uh, and so it was like his art installation there and we just we hit it off and then he ended up meeting sandy and then he ended up coming to the act lab and like the the amount of collisions that happened out of that and bar camps i was i got into bar camps with john and everybody else and um you know it was this time where things were just really uh uh vibrant and uh and and john and i were meeting all kinds of people uh in parallel like i was it wasn't like john and i were, were hanging out together but Everybody I would meet had met John, you know, if I was going to, what was the co-working space on the East side? Um, they had a house, uh, conjunctured. Yeah. If I was going to conjuncture, I'd, I'd be like, Oh, have you, you got to meet this guy, John Lukowski. And I'd be like, 
I know, John. Yeah, I, I was there all the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, if I I met new Jennifer Navarrete in San Antonio, and she was like, "You got to meet John Lukowski." I'm like, "I know her." You know, I know. That man. was such a great time. It really was. I mean, yeah. I mean, there it was it's a kind time, of gone now. What was because it, it was. I wish that uh, we could. Oh, go ahead. I I, I was just say I wish that we could recreate or revive the community yeah. that we had then because we had a. I mean, this goes all the way back to the early 90s. Uh, Austin right. definitely had uh, a whole slew of like early adopters of internet and, and forward-looking technologies and uh, open source, all of those things. And um, there was a community around that. We had the robot group, you know, mm -hmm. and Fringeware. We started Fringeware. Um, and people just kind of showed up you know, and hung around and, and uh, a lot of those people have gone now and some are still here, but they're not really like connecting the way that they used to. Uh, and then in the, in the era when like co-working started to happen and eventually Conjuncture was founded there and, and was there for, I don't know how many years they were operating there in East Austin, but uh, that was a whole other thing where people were getting kind of more entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had Bootstrap Austin and we had, uh, well, Dorkbot was happening then too. And I know you were you were involved with Dorkbot. Uh, explain what Dorkbot was. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about Dorkbot one second. But you know what's crazy about Conjunctured was that um, it came out of this thing called Jelly. Do you remember Jelly? Jelly, right. Oh, yeah, I remember Jelly. I was yeah. a Jelly person. Yeah, so Jelly was this Friday meetup at, at coffee, at a particular coffee shop. I can't remember the name of it for the life of me. Uh, and and it was just Cafe Caffeine. Ca it was yeah, Cafe, okay, Cafe Caffeine. Caffeine. Yeah, I mean, I didn't start drinking coffee until I was like 37. So it's like, you know, all these coffee shops names like were beyond me at the time. Cause this was like when I was like 25 and, uh, and so, um, I'll just never forget, you know, uh, C Caesar and Eric and, and John and, and, and those guys like and dusty and dusty. Yeah. Dusty, uh, setting up a plan to start a co-working space. And then one week just not being there. And we were like, where did they go? And they're like, well, they got the co-working space going. Like they're gone. Like they're at the co-working space. So you can go over there and see them. And I'm like, Oh wow. Okay. You know, that's, this really is happening. And like you said, like all, all of the, <laughs> what was interesting about that time was that there were people that were selfless with their time in a very unique way. And everyone knew that was part of this just had a feeling that like there was a reason to be selfless with your time, not just the camaraderie, but like, there was a, a sum beyond the parts, right? Like there was, there was more than what was being seen because you can go to work and be more than some of the parts, but in a creative work environment, it's, it's really powerful. And that was, I think that was a lot of the aura that we saw. And, and one of those things like you're talking about that came out of it was a uh, dork bot. I think I ran into it when David Nunes was running it at the time. I can't remember. Who was running it? Yeah, and then, and then that I'm pretty sure it was David at the time. Like, what was yeah. her name? The the unbelievably awesome woman um, that helped run it too at one point. She now does bicycle gear. She does a, a cycling gear. And so, anyways, I, I just met all these amazing people, and so Dorkbot was fun with electricity. 
and uh, it was a monthly meetup and it was at, you know, different, different venues. And, um, I just got to meet so many interesting people that were, were working on, on the fringe of both analog and digital art, you know, um, that was when we got to see the singing Tesla coils and then that turned into arc attack, or I, I can't remember the name of seven in that that group that you know ended up being on like television and i mean that was like that was that was the crazy time of that era was you know this was when i am i wrong john that you were also one of the people that helped kind of ideate a dorkbot fair that turned into maker fair and then maker took over and just kind of like well, uh, well the story about that was that i knew the editor of make magazine and right. i heard about the maker fair that they did out in the bay area was and great. i, I yeah. wrote him an email i sent him an email and i said you guys ought to do that in austin and i was shocked to hear an affirmative response he said hey i talked this up over here and that sounds like a great idea i think we will you know so yeah. they they brought maker fair to austin and uh that was the start of Plutopia too, the first yeah. event that the kind of test event for Plutopia was the DIY home of the future installation that. that we did at, at that, at that particular maker fair, the first maker fair in Austin. And they did maker fair here, I don't know, a couple of years. And, uh, it was, I think it was, uh, it was hard for them to produce it here. And what happened later was that they sort of cultivated local people to sort of do maker stuff and i think other maker fairs happened after that but they were locally organized maker fair needed to not be a centralized thing you know and and um and they knew that i mean they realized that yeah um you know that was a a, a really interesting time the person that name that popped up when you talked about the future of the home is, is Derek Woodgate. I remember Derek, Derek yeah. and his lively personality. Um, but, uh, but yeah. And then yeah, you know, Derek had a lot of, he had a lot of, uh, uh, background stuff from his various corporate futurist projects that could feed into things that we were doing with Plutopia. I mean, and, and that was that, so, that era I, of futurists, uh, the singularity, you know, where things were really getting, hitting that, that, that point of fruition. Yeah. You know, someone I use as, as kind of like an example of that era is uh Worley, you know, if you, if you knew uh, oh, yeah. uh, William Hurley, you know, like I'll never forget seeing yeah. him at like a bar camp and him telling me, yeah, you know, I'm working on this project and, you know, hopefully it takes off this time and like, you know, we'll see how it goes. You'll see me in two months and we'll know. You know, and then and then like it wouldn't take off, and and you know, and then the next time I talked to him, I can't. I want to say it was like 20, 2009, 2010 was when he launched Chaotic Moon. You know, and uh, and then that took off, and then some. And the next thing I know, he's like on the. They lawn. were very successful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he was on the lawn with you know the White House with Obama and Hillary, and uh, you know he's the VP at Goldman Sachs, and I'm like. All right, like we saw the full circle here, you know, <laughs> like, like, uh, uh, and then you know, on the other flip side, during that time, I was still meeting and talking to a bunch of open source centric uh, individuals and collaborating, and um, I ended up meeting uh, uh, 
not Nicholas Negroponte. Um, the other guy from the media lab. Gosh, dang, he stayed at my house. We think I'd remember. Joyito? Was it Joyito? No, it's uh, 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 he's the one that worked on the one laptop per child. Um, I'll pull his name up. I'll find it. I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. Uh, he, um, I should remember too. Yeah. He, he, oh, oh man. His, his name is like literally in my head and at the tip of my tongue, but I'm just not remembering it. Uh, Nor am I, it's hard to yeah, remember all of these names. There have been so name. many people. So, uh, um, so yeah, anyways, I'll, I'll, I'll find it. I'm looking it up right now. Uh, but yeah, it, so I ended up going to, uh, uh, having this conference in the, um, mid two thousands, like 2010s. And, uh, I, I was at this place called geekdom in San Antonio. It was like this San Antonio centric, uh, 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 working space. And so it was funded by this billionaire. It was in downtown in a building. And so it really had some steam going into it, if that makes sense. Uh, I really, I remember that. Is that the guy from, uh, what was it? The host Rackspace. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and so, wow. um, I mean, I'm trying to see if I, I'm still looking up the, the, uh, uh, Maybe it was Nicholas Negroponte. No, it's uh, because he was. uh, No, it's he was um, one of the uh, Nicholas Negroponte was like the head, like the the face of of this project. But um, gosh, open there we go. Was it Seymour Papert? No, it is. I'm gonna get him right there. We go. I found it. His name is Walter Bender. Oh, Walter and, Bender. Okay. Yeah, cool. Walter Bender. And uh, and so I met someone that had gone to Uruguay and worked with him. This She was a, a undergrad at St. Mary's University in San Antonio. And um, she was like, I really want to have an open education resource conference. And I was like, let's do it. And she was like, what? I was like, yeah, whatever you want to do. You tell me what you want to do. I'll make it happen. And so uh, we ended up having Walter Bender come. We had Joseph Prusa come, which I don't know if y'all know who Joseph Prusa is, but he makes 3D printers. He makes the Prusa Prusa Labs. He's, he's a really pretty big printer at this point. And, and then a slew of other educators and people come and talk about uh, hardware, software, and uh, um, uh, uh, curriculum uh, open source development or Libre development, as I learned later, open source is not as open source as it sounds. Libre is the ultimate, and and it is. I'm making and kind of poking fun, but it's 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 when you, when you and you know it's always interesting when you get into the fringe spaces and and nothing is never is ever like fringe enough. They <laughs> think at one level more, but um, but yeah, and so then it would come full circle, and I'd end up seeing Corey you know, Dr. giving talks about his, his latest books at, at book people. And, uh, and I ended up going to one right when, uh, unfortunately when Aaron Schwartz passed away and man, did, did, uh, did Corey give a talk about, about Aaron and his impact. 
And that was when I really started to understand like big data, which was not being called big data at the time. I was just talking about, you know, looking at data sets uh, and the impact they have. And so, um, so I was meeting people that were in that space and I was going up to Boston uh, and San Antonio. I was, I was building it out. Uh, I, I helped file 501c3 uh, 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 papers or documents for an, uh, a makerspace there. And then I helped them raise like $13,000 to buy a 3D printer and or not 3D printer, a laser cutter and, um, and got really involved in this kind of community maker uh, uh, projects, like these steam oriented projects, science, technology, engineering, art, and math, and the impact it can make in, 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 in uh, traditionally underserved uh, uh, spaces like, and well, and, 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 like by GIS data, like underserved spaces, like some of the, some of the poorest zip codes. Uh, I ended up running latchkey after school programming and, um, and going with other makers to go and, and teach them about soldering, teach them about, uh, uh, programming, just all kinds of different things using making makeys. And just, it was a really interesting time. And so that's, that was when like code for America. I don't know if y'all ever, met with the code for America people, but, uh, that was when there were like these kind of institutional open source and, um, copy left initiatives going on. And, and all of those have since just had a really hard time, uh, with the commercialization of social media. I mean, the commercialization of social media has really hampered innovation. Um, just, I mean, but just like the internet, I mean, the, that's what happened to the internet. That's what happened to the personal computer. That's what, you know, that's what happened to a lot of technology. And at the same time, it's driven some really great thing. I'm not, I'm not, not throwing it out, but it's definitely made it so that, you know, we're at a point where we're adversarial with our, with our social media <laughs> platforms, you know, we're, we're sitting there wondering, are they a publisher or are they a utility? Cause like, you can't be both at the same time. But evidently you can, you know, you have quite a history with a lot of great projects, but let's talk, um, redirect a little and talk about the future of media and okay. you, you talk to us about what's going on with the media and gaming lab. That's, that's, uh, probably the home of a lot of the media's future. Yeah. Uh, well, the future is a really interesting topic right now. Um, I teach popular culture and I teach uh, advanced social media. I also, um, I teach a technology and society class. And so, you know, this topic and this discussion is something that is just very, it, it's, it's deep right now. There's no, there's no like, well, this is what it's going to be. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, so I'll give you some like little motifs. Um, one, nobody knows what truth is right now. Truth is very relative. So it's very hard to come to a consensus in a room of what truth is. So one of the things I've done in my teaching is to not talk about truth. Instead, I talk about situations and occurrences and purported hit pass purported happenings. And, uh, I ask my audience to decide instead of me saying, this is what happened. I say, this is what's purported to happen. You decide. 
And uh, the more educated we are, the hopefully the better decisions we can make about what we believe happened and what's happening and what might happen. And so that's, that's like one of the, and it sounds so rudimentary and simple, but gosh, dang it. If not right now, like we aren't having the hardest time just doing that in a room of people that don't dis that in a room of people that disagree. Right. So, uh, that's right off the bat is that we don't, we have our tr truth is very, very relative to who you're around and where you are and geographically, all kinds of stuff. Then, um, some other things are uh, real-time manipulation. We have an issue with real-time manipulation. And what do I mean by that? Well, we have uh, artificial intelligence that's already being deployed and used by both our governments and big, big uh, institutions and corporations. They've already implemented it. It's not if, it's already being used. And, um, and, and those implications are things that are hard to see, right? So one of the things that I use to describe how to understand big data and, and, and possibly the future, just a real simple uh, uh, demonstration. If, if we have a, a y-axis and an x-axis, right? If the x-axis is time and the y-axis are all like we use our phone here, for example, all the inputs and data that's being collected over time on our phone, right? So right now it's GPS. If I'm moving my phone, it's got a gyro, you know, it's 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 looking at G's. It's look, you know, if I have an Apple Watch on, which I don't, it's got my heart rate, right? Um, photos that I've taken, apps that are open, apps that are pinging right now, apps that are looking at what other people on other networks are doing right now, those kinds of things, right? We if we were to write them down and put them on the y-axis, right? We then like go across time. So, you know, a second, 10 seconds, a minute, 10 minutes, 10 hours, 10 days, 10 years, so forth. We have a data set on us, right? That's pretty easy to see. You know, it's pretty easy to understand. The hard one to, I think, for society to understand is the Z-axis, right? It's this axis that goes out. And that axis is everybody has those data sets. And it's these calculations that these big companies are doing in real time or near real time at this point that we can't see or feel, but that we're feeling on the output. Kind of like when we talked about uh, traditionally with television being a one-way medium, right? Like me, like television, it's, it's this Marshall McLuhan, like, you know, silver bullet direct into you kind of thing. Um, big data media companies are using big data in that way. We're not, we don't know we're being manipulated. It's, it's this Z axis that we're not physically seeing or hearing, but is being pushed back at us. So if we're, if, you know, if, if you're at any age, any generation, you might go, okay, well, they got all my data, but then we go, okay, well, they have my pulse. They have, um, all kinds of, of uh, medical data is now being generative and being timed and kept. You know, what if we start doing our, our real-time glucose, right? Real-time blood pressure, real-time, all of these things. And they're great. I'm a diabetic and have high blood pressure. I'd love to have all that information, right? Like, that'd be great. But it's how the companies are going to use it in that Z-axis, in that way that I don't know that is that's going to be very, very problematic. 
right? So it's gonna it's gonna help me, but we're not. But but because capitalism isn't driven by the betterment of others, it's the betterment of the company. We don't know if that z-axis is truly benefiting us or partially benefiting us. And there's so much if if how much is left on the table. If that makes sense, and. It seems like it would be hard for us to really know for sure whether not just what are they doing, but whether what they're doing is actually working and actually having an effect. I mean, Corey says in response to a lot of the talk about how like Facebook manipulates people, that sort of thing. Corey says, well, nobody has a mind control, Ray, you know, and uh, and I've thought about that a lot. I assumed for a long time that you know, people were just kind of being led alone by the sort of thing that you're talking about. And then I came to question whether I can actually know that or not. You know, so I don't assume anymore. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I think I, it's a it's such a big unknown, you know. I agree with you. Um, and at the same time, we know that it's happening. I mean, you say something and your phone hears it and then you get an advertisement for it. So we, we know that yeah, yeah. at the very least, and a very... If you're super tech centric, that doesn't, that's not magic to us, but that's magic to normal people. Well, you know, there's stuff being pushed out onto that Z axis. That's really scary. Now, biometric data there. Are right. That's what I was really getting at. That want to buy that, sell, right. your, sell your, your, your iris scan, sell your thumbprint, sell and, your and, voice. And, and, uh, and what, what's, what's hard about it is that, um, you have medical companies and then insurance companies and then you have premiums and then you have how insurable you are. Right. And right now, like I, I mean, do I think just kind of like we're talking about the phone and talking into it and things coming up. I don't think we're being affected by it right now, but you're asking about the future. Right. And, and I think in the future, it's just too low hanging of fruit for them not to do it. Does that make sense? It's like, it's too, it's too low hanging of fruit to think they won't. They'll at least try. And like you said, how effective will it be? That's that that'll be proof, you know, the proof is in the pudding in that one. Well, if but you, that I is, mean if it's a, yeah. if it's effective, they'll do it and they'll keep doing that. But if right. uh, another question is what kind of metrics can they use to decide how effective it really is? Right. Well, so you know, I I I uh I you know when I came over to Texas A&M, one of the things that they have that's different than than what I was used to in, in RTF or even Convergent Media at UIW is that we have a, a communication health uh, major. So we do communication health. And so I got really nerdy into that because my sister's a pharmacist, as I mentioned, and my sister used to do run a drug information uh, 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 um, lab at UIW where, where I taught before. And uh, now she does informatics. Um, for the city and does uh, epidemiology and, and things like that. So I think about big data and health statistics constantly. I, I had her come and do a, a couple of workshops and lectures on it. And I'll continue to have her come because when you look at teen pregnancy and you overlay GIS data, right? When you look at uh, diabetes or high blood pressure and you overlay um, food scarcity, cultural deserts, you know, resources to fresh food and things like that. That's where HEB comes in. HEB has informat you know, people that are informatic, you know, you know, data science specialists that know all of that data. 
If you go to, I don't know if y'all know this, but there are different HEBs in different parts of town, right? No HEB is equal. And, yeah, absolutely. And, and, I can see that. And those are the, the I, I, I mean, I love HEB. I at them for my uh, Instagram on my barbecue. Like I love, I love, you know, I, I'm a, but, but the reality is, is that, uh, you know, I'm a capitalist too. And I understand the need to make money and have data and stay open. And that's going to drive people to have this more and more finite data. And, um, and so the question is, when do you do something about it? Right? Like, for example, just a real simple example. I take a bunch of generic medications for my blood pressure and um, uh, uh, diabetes, right? So I take metformin, which is a generic, take uh, metoprolol, which is a generic, and benazepril. Like those are three generics I'll mention, right? Now, if I go to HEB and I tell them I take these, they may, uh, or any, or if I go to any, uh, any uh, pharmacy and I tell them I'm taking these, They'll be like, what's your insurance? And they'll run my insurance. And, you know, my co-pays $15 for a 30-day supply, $45 for a, for a 90-day supply. Well, that's great, right? Well, the generic sheet says that if I don't use my insurance, it's $20 for a 90-day supply. Okay. Well, why doesn't this computer system, the POS system, just know that? Go like, hey. You don't need to use insurance on this. You can go ahead and use a generic, right? So I agree with you that some systems are not going to be enabled to be advantageous using AI. <laughs> you know? But I often wonder if they're going to be at the detriment of it not being as profitable, you know, and 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 things like that. So then you go and and you when like the medication field is just a racket. I mean, it's just a total racket. So, uh, you know, you really have to shop around and look. To find out what, and it's funny because, you know, I'm old, I'm not, I don't look old, but if you looked at the medications I took, it, I'd look old. And so I know a lot about pricing. And then with my sister, my sister still works professionally as a pharmacist on the weekends. And so, you know, I, I understand what's, what that space looks like in terms of, uh, are pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, and doctors able to work past their capitalistic obligations for the betterment of humanity, you know? That's a tough question. I'm not here to say yay or nay, but again, let's look at some data. Let's look and see what what what's being said in different spaces, right? And uh and and that's for me that's a lot of the future. That's where that truth is hard because, you know, I want to make money. I want I want people that are I want pharmacists to make good money, but I also don't want them overprescribing. I don't want them overselling. I mean, we talk about like lack of data. It's like we had this opioid epidemic and acted like we didn't know where it came from. Or all the all these, you know, <laughs> drugs are coming. I'm like, they're all prescribed. <laughs> You know where they're coming from. You know all the numbers. Like, yes, it was a gravy train, you know, and nobody wanted to say anything, but this was not somebody slinging dope on the side of the street. These were all accounted for, went through, you know, uh, prescription pads, went through the pharmacy fulfillment, went through the insurance companies, and everybody was just like, whatever, whatever. This is great. Yeah, well, you know, it was greed. Yeah. It was greed. They were greedy and they were trying to claim that 
these drugs were less addictive than they were uh, in order to sell more of them, you know, and then so, they were convincing doctors of that. That was kind of crazy. Yeah. So I just, I, I, you know, I'm not trying to get conspiratorial. I'm more just trying to say when I, I think the future, there's a reason we're skeptical, you know, and one of the reasons we're skeptical is because we do know too much now. Mm-hmm. We do know more than we've ever known. In general, as a society, we can find out things really fast. We can make wrong decisions even quicker, you know, um, and be ignorant of things, even as an expert. Um, as soon as we assume things, it's it's much quicker getting bit in it. Uh, that's one of the things I always try and always just like, I'm always like, this is my opinion when I'm in class. Uh, I don't, I'm not... Uh, while I'm an expert in this, this is changing. You know, there's there 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 are a lot of things I say now that are different uh, than even 10, 20 years ago because the future is 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 a really it's an interesting time in that I think for a while there we were predicting the future either in doom or gloom or in some like for, you know, like in a cyberpunk or um, post-apocalyptic kind of scenarios or in this like giddy way. And I think when we started seeing things like, uh, uh, was it uh, black mirror on Netflix and, uh, and these other kinds of things that were like, you know, doing narratives about social media scores and looking at AI enableization or drone enableization in creepy ways. Uh, if we look at Mr. Robot, right? Like the show Mr. Robot. And and if you were really nerdy, you were like, wow, this is I mean, I could barely watch it. I was just so depressed every time I every time I'd watch it, I'd just be like, Okay, we're gonna go do something fun after this, Joey. It'll be okay, you know. Because <laughs> Yeah, I used to do read a whole lot of dystopian science fit science fiction. Now I just read the newspaper. I mean that can't, you know, the, the sci-fi can't really con- con- compete with what's going on right now. And so it's it's uh so so for my students, you know, I I I, I, I tell them and ask them, and I and I ponder like, what does it mean to be an agent of change? What does it mean to have agency? What what drives you? You know, what what what's going to drive you? You know, what are what are some things that that you're, you're looking forward to because one of the hardest things I have right now um, with a lot of students is them thinking beyond finishing school and like, and, and, and what I mean by that is that a lot of them, they're so rubric based. They uh, they're like, just tell me how to make an A. Just tell me what I need to get an A. And, uh, and in my class, I slow, I mean, I, I take that, that dial and I just, turn it all the way all the way down and slow it down and go well what is an a what is a rubric you know i turn into sandy you <laughs> know and i and i and i start saying hey like this is a weird time not like what's happening right now but like in your life college is weird there's very few things in life where you go i want to give you tens of thousands of dollars to sit and take tests there are other people that are just going out and working. There are other people that don't care about college and are just going to go and do what they love. But you've decided to come here and, and put tens of thousands of dollars. This is the fleecing of America in many ways. 
Y'all are getting fleeced. What are you going to do? Like, what are your intangibles going to be? How are you going to be different? Both as someone that, yeah, you want to make money. And what about as a citizen? You know, what about as, as a family member? Because, you know, I teach at A&M. They're pretty conservative. I'm like, what are you going to do for your, your community? Who are you? You know, and, and what can you make in this class or do in this class that's going to add value to that? And then what are you going to do here in college that's going to add value to that? Because, you know, we're, we're sold on like, you know, you go to school, you get good grades. Well, like the reality is, is that life is, is, is hard for, for most people, even the most successful, like we end up questioning ourselves. We, you know, success is a moment more than a, than an attitude. You know, it's like most people, it's like, yeah, you got your degree. Now what? You got this now what? Yeah. You're going to, we're going to always you're going to always be like now, like even at work, you make a hundred thousand. Like that's another question I ask people a lot, just in general. I'm like, how much is enough money a month when you graduate? Is it $3,000 a month, 6,000, 12,000, a hundred thousand, a hundred million. I go, there are people in this world that all make that. So, you know, what your future looks like, you have to decide and um and sometimes that money you have to look at yourself and go okay now uh, yes i'm making this money but what's my mental health look like what's my relationships with other people look like you know am i the person i want to be because you can you can make lots of money and, and and be that but it's you know it's great to be reflective at a young age to be able to have that foresight and that's what i was given you know that's what i was given at ACLAP because i had that many we had millionaires in our presence. We had people that had made lots of money. We had people that were living out of their car, you know, <laughs> going to school and, and working jobs. And both were as competitive with each other in terms of intellect and, and ability and future potential, you know, for change uh, and change. And it could have even been financial, you know, financial change. I mean, I'll never forget. We had one student that, that uh, uh, worked at an anarchy bookstore when I met her. She's now a multimillionaire of a liqueur company. <laughs> Her name's Amy Stedman. Oh, She's wow. on Shark Tank and got a wow. million dollars in funding from Mark Cuban. Met her at a, at a monkey, you know, monkey Wrench Books and was helping do like zine workshops. You know, I was I was there doing zine workshops with her. Super amazing person, you know, of Syrian descent. And uh, uh, that's what I kind of play out with my students and play out with the future of like, all generations, you know, what are, I mean, I look at Sandy and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't think I'm going to be able to move like that at 86. I mean, yeah, she's I, a force I just, of nature. I wonder, you know, I just wonder, I'm like, am I going to be able to do yeah. that? Like, man, I'll be lucky if I can do that at 56, you know? <laughs> like, um, go ahead. So, 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 well, we're, we're at the end of our hour. Okay. And uh, it feels like a cliffhanger, and I'm wondering if you want to come back in a month or so and talk some more. I'm happy to. I'm happy to. That'd be great. Okay. That'd be well, great. I well, really appreciate, really you appreciate this. Yeah. It's enjoyable. Well, thank you for hearing your, uh, your history and your future. You've got a lot going on. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think there's a lot more to talk about. Maybe you can bring your sister next time, too. And we can oh, yeah. Do you talk to her. 
That sounds pretty interesting. The only problem too. with her and I is that we'll, we'll anyway. get too punny. We both have kids. We're exempt from not not being able to do puns. We can do puns because we have kids, and so we're just dangerous. <laughs> we have no we have no rules against puns. But yeah, no, I had a great time talking, and and um, happy to do it again. You just let me know. Okay, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, yeah. we enjoyed it. You can follow the Plutopia News Network at plutopia.io. On Facebook, go to at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. With John Lepkowski, I'm Scoop Sweeney. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future.